The phrase "May you live in interesting times" is an expression that is claimed to be an ancient Chinese curse. While it might sound like a blessing, it rarely is. Living through the pandemic and now the Great Resignation, these are indeed interesting times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of the Resilient Journey. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and my guest today is one of those people we claim needs no introduction. Industry icon Margaret Millet joins me this week on the podcast as we talk about the Great Resignation. Listen as Margaret discusses how the Great Resignation may create critical gaps in your organization, how to adjust business continuity practices to help your organization be more prepared, and why you might even want to consider changing some things in your BIA. So let's get right to it. Margaret, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Before we get too far into it, introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be here with you today. So my name is Margaret Millen, and I've been in the business continuity profession for over 25 years. I started off my career in Boston, Massachusetts, working for many of the financial institutions that are there. I then had an opportunity to go live and work overseas in Dublin, Ireland, working for Investors Bank and Trust and State Street Corporation. And then I moved to California to go work for eBay, and、uh, ended up in North Carolina working for MetLife. And now I'm working for Uber Technologies Inc.、Um, I have a passion for this industry and have really felt that it's important to pay it forward for、uh, people within the profession, but not only that, but the industry itself. So I've been greatly involved with helping set some of the. Standards for the organization by volunteering through、uh, Disaster Recovery Institute International, the Business Continuity Institute, mentoring people, speaking at conferences, and just trying to get new people into the profession. Because within the next two years, I think that we will face a, a different type of great resignation with a lot of people retiring. No, I think you're right, and I really admire that about you. I love your leadership in that area, the the mentorship and、uh, the way you do give back. I mean. I mean, is it is it safe to call you an industry icon? I think we're kind of approaching that status, aren't we? I I think so. I I have to say, I never thought I'd be one, Mark. When I first started going to conferences,、right. I just remember seeing certain people up on the stage. I'm like, wow, they have a lot of experience. And then I go to conferences, and people are like, oh wow, you know, you're so, you know, you've done so much and you've contributed so much. And I just sit there and like, okay, I'm gonna run and go get another cup of coffee now because I like to stay out of the spotlight. Right. But I think it is one of those when you've been around the block and you have contributed and you have spoken at conferences and published, etc. Um, that you do start to get a reputation of being an industry leader, and then the fact that I've been very fortunate in my career that I've worked for some big name companies.、Um, I was actually working on a, a deck this weekend, and I was looking at my ten employers that I've actually worked for, and seven out of those ten employers have been around in business for over a hundred years, which I think is a phenomenon, also in and of itself, in this day and age of people's companies coming and going. Well, that's really interesting. So, I mean, let's start with the basics here, because we're talking about the 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 Great Resignation. First of all, describe what we mean by that, and then, if you can, give us the latest on what you're hearing around the Great Resignation in terms of maybe statistics and impact. Like, bring us up to date. Where are we with it? Sure. So I'm going to go with what I believe Margaret Millet's definition is of the Great Resignation, because you could go read article after article, and everyone might have a different twist on it. 
I just look at the great resignation as these past two years with COVID, people have just had time to sit at home and reflect on what they do and do not want out of their lives. And we've had that flexibility of working from home 100%. I have to say, Mark, if you had told me probably even five years ago that I'd now be permanently working from home, I would have been like, oh my God, I have to work from home because I was a traditional person of going into the office five days a week. Uh, the year before COVID, I started to try and work from home one day a week. Um, and so I really appreciated that of having say the Monday, the Friday or the Tuesday, whatever day of the week I needed. And then all of a sudden, when we started working from home, I was just like, well, this is actually, you know, nice because I got to do what I wanted to do with the course of my day of if I wanted to get up and take a walk in the morning, I could go do that. I couldn't necessarily do that if I had to hop in the car and get to work. Um, I think people are also realizing, you know, you're not spending as much money on commuting cost, food cost, clothing cost. Um, and also you can there's the pros and cons, though, of then being at home. Um, some people, of course, like it. Um, not, I mean, excuse me, like going into an office. So therefore, you've got to figure that out. But I just think that so many people have had time to reflect on it. And then I think on the flip side, employers, some employers have taken advantage of it, meaning you're, you're at home. So therefore, if I need you at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., you should mm -hmm. be there. And mm -hmm. I think that's where people have started to say, is this what I really want out of life of having a work-life balance? And I look at it as people are going to continue to evaluate this, especially since many organizations this past spring have started return to office. And I think this will continue throughout 2022 and beyond as people decide what they do and do not want out of their work-life balance. All right. So I have a bunch of follow-up questions out of that. So is the problem here that people got used to working from home and they don't want to go back to the office now? Is that sort of the main driver? I would say it is. I think that, again, you've got people who like the fact that uh, they can get up, go do something, and then get on, do some work. I think that a lot of people have realized, hey, I'm not in the car an hour each way going to the office. I'm not paying for parking. I'm not having to pay for lunch. I'm not having to pay for my coffee. Not saying that some organizations don't give that to employees. But I also think it's easier than to not feel like you're breaking your neck to get home to go do things with your family because you're only 10 feet away from getting into the car. Or if your kids take the bus home, that you're there to greet them as opposed to having to go do something else to arrange afternoon activities for them too. So what are you hearing as far as impact? Um, and, and I don't mean just in our industry. We'll get to our industry in a minute. But just statistically... Um, for something to be called the great resignation. I mean, this has to be a pretty widespread issue. So what, what are you hearing about that? I'm hearing that a lot of people have been either evaluating what they want out of life and making the decision to leave their job. Uh, I know personally, I know people who just were like, I'm, I'm fed up with corporate America. I'm mm -hmm. leaving and they left and they figured out that they had the financial means to make it work personally. And then they are doing other jobs to augment their income and benefits, but they are much happier. And I think this is the key thing that's the takeaway is people have realized life is too short not to be happy. And therefore they're doing what they need to do in order to find their own personal happiness. Yeah, that's what I've been hearing too. The pandemic has been a period where people coming out of it, hopefully we're coming out of it, are uh, looking at things a little differently, reevaluating. And, and so that's probably driving it. So let me ask you this. There's also on social media, a very strong hashtag anti-work uh, movement that's going on out there right now. 
Uh, I, have you seen that? And do you think, is that connected to the great resignation? Is it a byproduct of it? Um, is it primarily younger people that are in this kind of hashtag anti-work movement? What, what are your thoughts around that? I think that probably people of all ages, um, Mark, because, you know, there, there are people who definitely don't want to go back to work. I think you've also got people who are, um, um, have low social skills. So being at home makes them much more comfortable because they can get onto a meeting. They don't have to turn their camera on. And so there's less interaction. And so therefore they appreciate not having to do that. Um, and so I think the other thing is, is people will go seek employers who are going to meet their checklist of what they want out of their work. Um, again, I, I say that everybody has to work because I don't know too many people who are independently wealthy. So therefore, we all have bills to pay every month and we all have to eat and pay car insurance, etc. So I do think that this is something that's getting looked at strongly across all age groups as to what they need to do in order to find their happiness at work. And things tend to move sort of in a pendulum swing. And, and I think with this anti-work movement that we're seeing, it, there's starting to be pushback on things that have maybe just traditionally always been a certain way, whether it's a five-day work week, a 40-hour work week, whether it's certain work expectations around time or whatever. Um, and I see a lot of things on social media where people are saying, you know what, that's not acceptable to us, to us anymore. Um, we don't want to do it the, the old traditional way. And you're so spot on on that, Mark. I think this is definitely a time in the workplace where the employees are in the driver's seat and not the employer. Mm -hmm. I do hear from many people that they have what I'll use as air quotes, return to work policies. Um, but I don't think that anyone is out there truly enforcing it. If they say, hey, we'd like you in the office two days a week or whatever the requirements are for your organization. I think they're just looking to ensure that, that there's the capability there that you have an opportunity to return to the workplace, that things are there. I will say this, people who I do know have returned to the workforce, depending on how big your organization is. The other thing that I'm now starting to hear is, for example, that they are not happy about the return to the commute or paying for the parking and that they get to work. And if they do have food services, it's not the full food services that they had pre-COVID. So it's more, hey, here's a grab and go for a salad or a sandwich, as opposed to here's the pizza bar. Now, maybe that'll start to evolve, but I think that when you start and look at all these things, and then the other thing that I hear is I get to the office, but there's nobody here. So therefore I'm just joining a Zoom call. So I think when you start and look at all these things, people are like, so why do I need to be in an office? And the other thing that people are also saying is we've been outfitted to work from home. Therefore I have my monitors, I have my mouse, et cetera. And I go into the office and they want me to work on a laptop. Well, working on a laptop is great if you're on a business trip. However, if that's what you want my norm to be for a few days out of the week, give me what I need in order to be productive at the office, just like I'm working out of my home office. Yeah, it's an interesting balance, right? And then uh, the employer-employee relationship has to be just that. It's got to be a, a relationship that's beneficial to both sides, I think. So now, what about in the business continuity industry? What are you seeing? Are you hearing about a lot of our colleagues who are jumping around or looking for opportunities maybe because of remote work or other reasons? So I will say this, Mark, it was interesting. I still think that a lot of business continuity professionals are either in their current jobs 
I also found in talking to peers at the past few conferences I've attended in 2022, that most of them who changed jobs was because they got let go by their employers in 2021 or 22. And I think some of this was interesting because when you looked at how COVID was managed, it wasn't your traditional crisis management chain of command. It was a whole new group of people within the executive leadership teams who came to the forefront to try and help, excuse me, manage the situation. Therefore, you were talking to people who had not been part of your normal audience. And when I talked to some of my peers about why they got let go, it was for very unique reasons of not making sense of two and two equaling four. And so some of it, I think it's just been the reprioritization of how business continuity management is being managed and looked at within organizations. I believe most of our peers have still stayed in their jobs if they did not lose their job. But I do know many of them are starting to, again, enjoy the benefits of working from home. And most of them I know are not going back into the office unless they have to go in because of certain meetings. They said, again, we work very unique hours. We're 24-7, 365 teams. And so therefore, why do I need to get into an office if I can effectively manage an event from my home office? Um, you know, they did state that, again, if there's executive leadership meetings that are taking place, again, they will be in the office. But I think that the business continuity professionals are going to be part of the move to state, hey, let's work from home. Well, it makes sense. I mean, and you you talked about it, you, mm-hmm. you know, right at the top, you talk about how you're basically working from home pretty much every day, right? I am permanently working from home at my current employer because the closest physical office is in Washington, DC, and I'm in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision when I was out job searching last year that I had applied for jobs outside the state of North Carolina. But then I was like, this is my home. This is actually marked the longest place I've ever lived at since I left my parents' house at the age of 18. And therefore, why do I want to move or why do I want to go rent a one bedroom apartment to only then come home, you know, a few weekends out of the month when I have my friends here, my social network, and I decided I didn't want to do it. So I have it in my offer letter that I do not need to relocate. It's uh, funny that you mentioned that because uh, we were just having that exact conversation this weekend. Where we live right now is the longest I've ever lived outside of the home I grew up in. Yeah. So as an adult, uh, this is it. And uh, you know, I'm full-time consultant and none of my clients, not, not a single one of them are within commuting distance. And uh, like you said, uh, I've had one where I've actually flown to their location, walked into uh, to their office, only to have a Teams meeting. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just flew six hours to get here. We we could meet in person. That would be all right. Uh, so so I get it. Uh, and I think that even the people who are in the consulting business, like yourself, are working for the large consulting organizations. They're not going to be traveling like they used to of leaving on Sunday, Monday, returning Friday, Saturday. I think that's, again, cutting down on those travel expenses for consultants. If that's something that a company can save money on, they will do it. Right. And companies are saving money. I mean, they at least have the opportunity in the long term to say, all right, look, if we allow our employees to work from home, then we don't need this huge office building. We could downsize that, maybe lease a different space. So there's benefits on both sides. Yeah, I would not want to be in the corporate real estate business right now, Mark. <laughs> yeah, completely agree. You, you talked about people in our industry changing jobs mainly because they had to, because they were let go. 
And you're right to say that in some organizations, the pandemic was not handled like a continuity event or a crisis management event. So I want to ask your opinion on something because I've done a fair amount of research on this too. Talk about the perceived lack of value of the business continuity program in an organization where coming out of a pandemic, they can look at their business continuity people and say, okay, we're going to let you go. They must not have seen value in the program from the beginning. So I'm not sure whether it's not that they didn't see value. I think that also when I talked to a lot of these people, they had had new leadership at their organizations, which then also can sometimes mean we're bringing in different characters to fulfill roles. But I also just look at it as that executive leadership, what I'll say sometimes just went through the motions of meeting with the global resiliency teams, the business continuity team saying yes. Um, And I'm going to say this, I know quite a few people across the globe who do business continuity management, just as I'm assuming as you do, Mark. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of anybody who said that things were normal as to how the situation was managed during COVID-19. And so therefore, you're trying to foresee what the executive leadership team wants because they don't know what they want. So you're trying to give it to them. And then this was unfolding so quickly as it went from Asia to EMEA to North America to Latin America. How do you keep up with the bouncing ball? We were then asked because we are the source of so much data at organizations to take on more to help manage the COVID situation. Like I know myself and many other people, you know, we were asked to start looking at things related to facilities and VPN connections and things like that. And it's like, why aren't we going to the areas that have that expertise? But because we were the go-to team, we were being asked to do certain things. And then I think that the other thing that people just got hung up on is what I'm going to say, the little nuances. Well, um, you know, did you not do enough exercises or business continuity exercises or enough disaster recovery testing on your IT? What was it? And so when I think when I talk to people, the real reason why they like got let go, it really wasn't substantive as to supporting the program. But I also just think that that window of trying to continue to let people know about what the importance of a business continuity management program is, is going to be fading as we get out of what I'm going to call the COVID approach. But I still think that business continuity professionals need to carpe diem on continuing to work with the executive leadership, make sure they are included in executive leadership decks and board decks. Now, I also know the real estate for those decks is very, very challenging to get. So I also say, if you can only get one slide, take it, but then ask if you can get more information in the appendix, because this way, at least your information about the wellness of your program is being communicated up. And therefore, they can you can say that you've been informed every quarter or whatever the cadence is that you'd have an opportunity to go talk to them about it um, and, and get it out there. I really like that. And, and you're right. Leverage whatever real estate you can get. And if it's one slide, take it but speak the truth, say what you have to say. If you're in an organization that is focused on just doing it to check off a box, I think, and and push back on this if you don't agree with it or if you don't like it, but if you work for an organization as a BCM professional, that you can see all of the signs and you know that they're only in this to check off a box, you have to consider yourself at high risk because they're not in it for the same reasons that we would be in it, right? They're not in it to be more resilient, Uh, or to build those redundancies. And so I think as the professional, 
that needs to be sort of top of mind is to move them forward to get them out of that mindset. Yeah, totally, totally agree, Mark. But I think the other thing that continues to evolve, and like I said, I've been in this profession for many, many years, um, the number of people that are part of a business continuity management team, when you look at, say, crisis management, business continuity, disaster recovery, we're always very small, lean, and agile teams. And why is it that you look at other areas within organization, HR, legal, finance, et cetera, uh, customer service, they all have lots of people supporting them, but yet you know, we're being asked to touch base with every division within an organization to work with them to put together a risk assessment, a business impact analysis, a business continuity plan, do exercising for critical things. And then if you do crisis management, it's doing something with sites and then with the technology, the applications, it's like, and there are only so many days out of the year. And then as we all know, the best laid plans go awry because there's always something new that falls into your lap every year that you've got to account for that wasn't part of your strategy for that calendar year. And that's why I think it's really important for our colleagues to, I don't expect them to be experts in all of these different areas, right? I don't expect them to be a cyber expert or a facilities expert or cyber insurance expert or anything like that, but have at least of a enough of a working knowledge of it so that you can have conversations about it and know who to engage. That adds value too, right? So right. I, I think that that's really important. You're, you're spot on on that one too, Mark. And I think the other thing is, is, you know, what are you a specialist in? Because for example, when I started, it really was the core domains of crisis management, business continuity, and disaster recovery. And now we are having things bleed into part of that business continuity management realm, yeah. like cybersecurity and the supply chain. I, I look at it as, again, like when I hear people at organizations being asked to, you know, create the questionnaires for vendors, review the responses, make recommendations, it's like, I'm not vendor management. That's a whole nother field. Mm -hmm. And they should have a vendor management team at an organization happy to supply you with some sound business continuity management questions that you should ask that are maybe yes, no, so you can help make determination about it. But I shouldn't be out helping to determine whether we want to bring on board or offload a, a company. That's 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 you as vendor management working with the business that wants to sign on the dotted line with that organization. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's a fine line. It's a trade-off between being able to demonstrate the fact that you have value in other areas of the business without drifting out of your lane so far that you're now not paying attention to your core competencies. Correct. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. All right. So let's switch gears just a little bit. We have an organization that may have been hit significantly by the great resignation, but we as a business continuity professional are still intact. We still work there. How can that business continuity professional help that organization navigate through that? So I actually started thinking about this even before the great resignation set into place, Mark, because when COVID unfolded um, a little over two years ago, you know, the thing that we, I was really worried about is loss of life. Um, because when we first started to hear about COVID, we didn't know if the um, mortality rates were going to climb very high. So I know at all the organizations I've ever worked at, there are other teams that are also very small or there are single points of failure. So one thing that I had started to do was start and evaluate the business impact analysis to find out, again, long-term, are you, this is this process managed by 
somebody that's a single point of failure. I also know that there are certain functions that cannot work from home. And so really starting to evaluate on that process, is it something that can be function performed remotely or not? Um, also, if there is cross training that needs to get done, if there is the capability of sending that workload transfer to another part of the organization, um, oftentimes I then start to hear, well, we don't use the same systems or I only do say domestic, I need to learn how to do international, whatever the case may be. But what are the unique things that need to take into consideration about that? And I think this is also true with some of the older technologies that we are running at organizations because we have people that are so knowledgeable. Like, for example, if companies are still running mainframes, you've got a select group of people that are winding down careers. So who's getting that expertise if you're still running mainframes? And how are they going to function if you don't have that person? So I started to, to look at that and adding enhancements to the business impact analysis. And I think the other thing that really needs to get factored into, Mark, is you know we're global organizations. People really need to understand what are the days of the week that you work? What are the hours? What are the holidays? Um, because I also know when COVID was unfolding, you know, you had the Lunar New Year taking place in Asia. There were some holidays in the Middle East. Um, you know, we were trying to confirm which countries actually did work Sunday through Thursday versus Monday through Friday. Because um, when you work for a global organization, you really are only down to four days a week that you work with. But when you're also working tight deadlines for executive leadership, then you got to factor in is when are you going to get the data if that's a holiday or people are technically not supposed to be working because it's their weekend. So let me translate what you just said into some practical advice for our colleagues who might be listening to say, okay, how can I do what you just said? So uh, uh, sort of a quick case study. So I have a client that has a 24 by seven network operations center and two very critical resources on their frontline support have just given notice and they're in Europe. So it's going to be, it was an extended notice. It was probably six weeks notice that they gave. But just understanding as the business continuity person uh, for that organization, understanding that those people are also very close to being single points of failure because the backup people that they have in another region have also left. So now as a business continuity person, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, huh, there's a real gap here. There is a potential for a disruption because we don't have the resources that are going to be required. The advice that I would give to my colleagues in this situation is don't wait for the business continuity event to happen and then think, oh boy, what are we going to do? Be proactive, be preemptive, show some thought leadership and get out there and work with the leaders to try to figure out some strategies to work around it. I mean, that's just practical advice. Yes, you are right about that, Mark. And the other thing that I do is, you know, again, the business impact analysis should be signed off by um, a senior person within that department. They mm -hmm. should be signing off on it. And then the other thing that I think that we need to start to do is there are going to be more single points of failures as organizations try and get leaner and meaner on staffing requirements and saving money. But I also think this is where um, it's important to start and work with your governance and risk and compliance teams to determine whether you should be assigning risk findings to state that, hey, I talked to this individual, they have a single point of failure, they're willing to accept the risk. Um, and then this way, it's also documented within a, an organizational system of record that there was a risk and they chose to accept it. Because 
oftentimes what could happen also is they'll come back to the business continuity team and say, why didn't you let us know that there was a single point of failure in this particular team? But it's one of those of like, I did. And I went to the head of that department and let them know about it. And here's the risk finding where they signed off on this on February 1st of that calendar year. They accepted the risk that they had limited resources or a single point of failure to continue to process that function. Wow. I wish we had another, you know, session that we could do because you just triggered something. The whole idea. We can of do another one, Mark. Let's do, we'll do another one. I'll have you back. But, you know, raising a risk because of finding a single point of failure, so important, but then not letting that risk just sit there without some kind of mitigating action, even if it is the leader saying, okay, I accept it. Uh, that's so important. And again, ways that the business continuity professional can be in the middle of this and start to generate meaningful conversations with the other leaders. I mean, it, again, it goes beyond waiting for a disruption to get into being proactive and, and doing some work. Yeah. And it's also just not about, you know, somebody deciding to change jobs. It's, it could be, you know, you need to go out on paternity leave or maternity leave. You yeah. are, you get sick, you know, when COVID first started, uh, people were out for extended periods of time before the vaccine became available. So again, nobody can stop work for two to six weeks or something, Mark. And then, you know, the other thing that I always kind of laugh at now back in the day, you know, I, I think you and I are old enough to say, oh, you know, we can go to paper and pen. You right. can't go to paper and pen anymore. So to say that there's a manual workaround, that's for like a blink of an eye, because in this day and age to try and process the, the backlog, that's going to be humanly impossible. No, you're right. You're, you're spot on with that. People listening might want to hear more from you. I don't know. Maybe you might get invited to either another podcast or maybe to speak at a conference or something like that. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, always happy to go talk to business continuity professionals across the globe because uh, I look at it in a reality. We are a very small niche group of people that do this and always happy to, to talk to people and, and help mentor new people to enter the profession or help them get to the next job at their career. Because regardless of the great nation, we all want to be happy at work, Mark. And therefore, sometimes you just got to make a career move in order to fulfill your own happiness. That's the advice, right? I mean, if you're not if you're not happy, it's time to look around. Yep. Yeah. So true. Margaret, thanks for doing this. Thank you very much for inviting me to join your podcast, Mark. I'm very happy to be a guest today. I want to give a big thanks to Margaret Millett for being my guest today. Honestly, she's one of those people I could talk to for hours on end. I also want to say a special word of thanks this week to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me to tell me that you heard something on one of these podcasts that helped you. Uh, I received a few of those calls just this week. And, you know, that's why we do this podcast. We want to help people in our industry to move forward, to learn, and to grow. And to that point, be sure to tune in next week for a huge announcement about the podcast. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.